0: Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Saturius Johnson. Today, we hit the road. It's a special turbocharged edition of the podcast. We have a full tank of gas, chrome wheels, and ahead of us,
1: an open road. Getting in a car and driving is, is such a wonderful way to not only experience the landscape of a place, but to give yourself the freedom to stop and, you know, do the unexpected. That's travel insider Nathan Lump. He's just
0: one of the guests we'll revisit on this road trip edition of the podcast. You know, some say that unstructured time is the new luxury, and there's no better way to open yourself to new experiences than on the open roads of California. So in the next half hour, relax, and let your imagination take you across the state with some of our favorite guests. Buckle up and take a ride with California Now. Welcome to a special edition of the California Now podcast. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Each episode, we do our best to introduce you to people and places that make California such an exciting place to visit. But what if you're one of those people for whom the journey is the destination? Well, there's a long tradition of hitting the road here. It goes back to the beginnings of statehood when prospectors wheeled their way to the Golden State. This road winds through the stories of John Steinbeck, through the songs of Woody Guthrie, to the Beach Boys and beyond. And it co-stars in films like Easy Rider and Rain Man. Today, we honor the California Road Trip. In its modern form, your adventure probably begins with your arrival by air. Rent a car, and you're ready to hit the road. You'll never run out of exciting destinations, and just maybe it'll be the journey itself that sticks with you for a lifetime. We'll start about 100 miles north of San Francisco in Anderson Valley. It's part of Mendocino County and contains beautiful coastline, agricultural areas, and well-established vineyards. Recently, I spoke to travel expert Nathan Lump, and he told me a great story about exploring Anderson Valley by car.
1: I'd never been there, and I was um, going to be in Napa for, um, for a birthday celebration. And so I said to my husband, like, you know, let's, let's get in the car and drive up there, because it's a part of California I've never experienced before, and it sounds really, really awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the perfect little road trip. Um, and speaking of road trips, it seems like the entire category is having a moment right now. Why do you think road trips seem so appealing these days?
1: You know, I think I think people like the idea of slowing down a little bit and kind of immersing themselves in places that, you know, getting in a car and driving is is such a wonderful way to... Not only experience the landscape of a place, but to give yourself the freedom to stop and you know do the unexpected. We, in fact, on our on our trip, we drove up from um, Calistoga. We took 128 out of Calistoga up towards um, up towards Mendocino, and had one of those serendipitous moments where we found ourselves at a certain point where we were hungry for lunch, and we weren't quite where exactly where we thought we were going to be at that moment because um, we left a little bit later, and um, so we did this detour. We up, went up on. Highway 101, we got off the 128 and um, went to Hopland, which is not necessarily a notable thing, but when we were going back then to um, to get into Anderson Valley, because we took that detour, we ended up on this little road called Mountain House Road that took us back to the 128, and that road was unbelievably beautiful um it's kind of winding through the you know the hills and dales of anderson valley surrounded by agricultural land and it was just a it was such a treat and we never would have been on that road if we hadn't made that detour
0: if you don't mind i'd like to climb into the passenger seat and, and join you on a recap of the journey
1: you know anderson valley if you haven't been there is like you know people you know people often say sonoma's like napa 20 years ago you know Anderson Valley is really like Sonoma 20 years ago it's um, you know it feels really feels really agricultural um, super kind of local when you go into a tasting room you're often you know tasting with the winemaker um, or the owner of the of, of the vineyard or winery um, and everybody's like you know it's it's super chill and friendly and people give you um, more ideas of other places to go like the first place we stopped on the way in on 128 was a place called Yorkville Cellars which is basically the first one you come to mm. and um and the guy who owns it, who's there doing the tasting, you know, he knows your, he knows that he's probably your first stop. And so, one of the things he does when you're done with your tasting is he pulls out the map and goes through all of the wineries in Anderson Valley with you, and you know, gives you his recommendations. And it's such a such a nice experience. It, you know, it feels, um, you know, it's really warm and um, and actually really helpful. Um, another one of the places that we stopped after that was. Um, another place called Penny Royal Farm, which is uh, a winery, but also a working farm. And they raise goats and <laughs> um, make their own cheese. And so one of the things that's awesome there is that you can do a wine and cheese um, pairing kind of tasting, which is such a nice um, experience to um, to have the wine with some food and their cheeses are really awesome. Um, so that was a great, that was a great place. And then we um, stopped in Boonville, which is one of the little towns like adorable little town. Um, you know, got some ice cream at a place called Paysan, and, um, there's a wonderful store there called Farmhouse Mercantile, which is like the, um, most attractive, uh, kind of hardware store you'll ever see in your life. (laughs) Um, and then, um, and then we ended up staying the night at, um, a place called the Madrones, which is a kind of a, it's a little, Kind of complex of Mediterranean style buildings. Complex makes it sound larger than it actually is, but um, it's basically a B and B, and it's um, super, super cute. Um, the guys who run it are, you know, are on site, and they've got. And one of the nice things there is that, in addition to the rooms, and they only have a handful, they um, they have some extra space that they rent out to other people. So they actually have a couple tasting rooms um, on site and their own shop, which is really wonderfully curated with lots of um, great stuff for the home.
0: It's so amazing to be able to, you know, have access to the amazing wine and food. And then on top of that, to have that personal touch uh, from the people who you meet.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's the great thing about these kinds of destinations, I think, is that, you know, because they're not wildly commercialized and super heavily touristed you just you know people have a little bit more time and they're on hand and they're really excited that you're there you know we went for dinner that night to a restaurant called the bewildered pig um which is in philo which is turned out to be we did a tasting menu you know it's it's run by a husband and wife team um you know he's in the front of the house working in the you know work in the room she's in the kitchen cooking and um and the food is so memorable. It's really some of the best food I've had in a long time. Um, You know, I still think about a dish that we had in that tasting menu, which was so incredibly simple. It was a grilled white peach with, um, homemade, uh, herbed ricotta cheese, some prosciutto, um, foraged greens and some tangerine oil uh, Hmm. drizzled on top and you know all those ingredients are super simple but put together you know they were all so fresh and put together just kind of created this you know just magic on the plate. It's
0: pretty amazing that you can remember so vividly the experience and or you know a meal that you had weeks and months later that says a lot.
1: Yeah no it's you know when you've got those things that really kind of touch you in a way you you know you really do remember them well. I mean, you know, great wine,
0: interesting restaurants, natural beauty, the lure of the open road. It, it sounds like your Mendocino County road trip checked a lot of boxes.
1: It, it really did. I mean, I, you know, I, I I'm, I'm gushing a little bit, but I mean, it, seriously, it was a it was a um, it was a really wonderful trip.
0: Sounds dreamy. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Nathan. Yeah, thank you, satirius. Great to be here. That was travel expert Nathan Lump. Our next stop is perhaps the most famous thoroughfare in California.
2: With its Pacific Coast Highway stretching 655 miles, California has one of the most epic road trips you can take. And I'll be traveling through a small but monumental part of it, starting just a few hours south of San Francisco and making my way to the incredible Big Sur.
0: That's Samantha Brown, the host of travel channel shows like Passport to Europe and Girl Meets Hawaii. When I spoke with her, she had just finished work on her latest series, Samantha Brown's Places to Love, which begins with a trip driving south from San Francisco, visiting Big Sur and Monterey.
2: I think that, you know, Big Sur is one of those places that um, is it an actual place? Is it a region? Is it a town? Is it a state of mind? No one really knows who doesn't live right in Big Sur, um, but we know what it represents, which is the magnitude of California. It's it's exclamation point. And I've always loved it. I've gone there a few times, and it's, to me, just amazing that on one side— of the the street of the Pacific Coast Highway, you have the Pacific Ocean and these huge crashing waves and then you'll come upon a redwood forest and you'll be so deep uh, within trees that are ancient and larger and, and bigger in diameter than most homes. And it's truly one of the most remarkable places in the world. And so many travelers think that these huge moments exist outside our, our country, or maybe they're untouchable, and yet they're extremely accessible.
0: So if I were planning a, a quick trip to Big Sur and Monterey, what, what would my itinerary be, you know, ideally in your uh, mind? What, what would I have to do to really get the most out of it?
2: I think one of my favorite spots was this tiny little town called Moss Landing, which I believe is is above Monterey. And it had a great restaurant called Hot Enchilada, Hot Enchilada. And uh, the woman who owns it, Kim Solano, uh, opened it maybe 10 years ago. But her father uh, is quite famous in the area, Ray Solano, and he owns uh, the whole enchilada, which opened up in 1979. So it's this wonderful father-daughter team. And the food is fantastic. It's, it's, it's Latin American. It's everything from Cuban to Puerto Rican to Mexican. Um, but it's filled with art. And the art is just vibrant in the restaurant. And she also has this this beautiful um, outdoor seating area that's filled with beautiful succulents and plants. And you can hear the ocean in the background. And she talks about just how important it was for her to open up a business that brought all those elements of uh monterey bay uh, together i think uh, you have to go to the aquarium you have to it's wonderful i've been to monterey mm. three times i've been to the aquarium three times <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's it's there's something new to to focus on and to really enjoy what about wine hmm. so there are a lot of wineries in uh, this area on uh, in monterey bay and uh, along uh, towards big sur can i give you like a specific place to Sure. To Okay. Um, Go to the Nicholson Winery because it's family owned and it's only, I want to say, three to four acres. That's it. And so even though California is known for this massive wine industry, uh, it also has these tiny, tiny boutique places that literally just sell their wine at their winery. Kind of like not, not, not quite out of the trunk of their, <laughs> their car. It's actually a really nice winery. But it's that personal um, experience that you have at a family-owned place that I think you're going to love. And then head down the coast. And I always say just um, stop. Just just stop. Just pull over. And especially go to the farm stands That you see along the way, and we stopped at a beautiful one called Pizzini's Farms, and this has been a farm uh, since 1929. They've been growing artichokes, and it's all from one root that the great-great-great-great-grandfather brought over from uh, Sicily. Wow. We uh, stopped at, and I say we because I'm with a a camera crew, but we stopped off at the state park Garapata, and it's one of the few places that you can really get on the beach once big starts to happen because... After a while, there are, you know, 500-foot sea cliffs. And so that feeling of walking on the beach and feeling literally the power of the Pacific Ocean because these waves crash very close to shore, and you feel that power. And in the distance, you can see whales. And that's a state park that you... I mean, again, this is totally free. This is something we all have access to. And so make sure that you stop at that state park.
0: Do those ridiculous views of the Pacific coast in Big Sur? Do they still take your breath away? You've been there several times now.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, uh, two of our crew members are, are like from Santa Barbara and they were just like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I cannot the believe views. this. Like, you know, Yes, <laughs> just unbelievable. So even people from California uh, never take it for granted. All right.
0: Thanks so much, Samantha. Great. Coming up, What's on your bucket list? Whatever you're looking for, you have a good chance of finding it here in California. Maybe it's a night under the stars of Death Valley or a tour of the latest architectural wonders of Southern California. We'll talk about those as well as olive oil, craft breweries and more all coming up on the California Now podcast. author Sam Lubell has written eight books on architecture, including the fascinating mid-century modern architecture travel guide. I asked him to design a road trip, taking in some of the best in recent California architecture. We started in San Diego and worked
3: our way north. Uh, Probably my favorite new building there is the Central Library in San Diego by Rob Quigley. Uh, And essentially what he did there, this library took so long to build, but essentially He's bringing back the idea of this sort of take your breath away, awe-inspiring central space, uh, sort of an atrium to uh, reading room where you look up and in s- several floors up at a time, and sort of uh, it, it brings sort of the grandeur back to uh, to architecture spaces in a really uh, contemporary vocabulary. That sounds very cool. What, what's next? Uh, probably the next one is in Anaheim. Uh, And that is the new Arctic uh, train station, not Arctic like in the Arctic, Mm -hmm. but Arctic, uh, which is a, a, a long acronym that I won't get into. But essentially, it's a it's a train station that was built to anticipate. Uh, anticipate high speed rail coming to the state, but it's already being used for regular rail and also to host buses and other forms of transportation. And uh, it's uh, also bringing back the, uh, the idea of the cavernous space, which, I, which I, you can see I love, and the sort of drama to architecture. It's one continuous hall uh, that on top is actually covered with uh, plastic panels. They're called ETFE panels. They're inflatable. And uh, that basically helps with insulation, but it also allows for natural light to come into the space uh, from all all around it. Uh, and it opens it up. And it's really one of the coolest new spaces uh, in California. Nice. I'm, I'm guessing LA has got to have some cool buildings, right? LA definitely has some cool buildings and a lot of cool architects. But probably my favorite not original. The newest uh, art, the, the new major art museum uh, uh, is the Broad, which is built by Diller Scafidio and Renfro. Uh, and it's on, on Grand Avenue uh, in downtown LA. Uh, it's really injected a lot of energy into that area. Uh, and uh, it, it's the uh, art collection of Eli Broad, one of the richer uh, men in LA. And uh, it's, uh, it's basically, uh, it's, it's got a sort of this waffle exterior uh, made out of uh, it's really high-tech uh, fiberglass panels uh, that were sort of formed uh, in, in a pattern that you really couldn't do without computer fabrication. And inside, uh, you kind of take this long escalator tube uh, ride uh, up from this kind of cave-like first floor up to this uh, open and completely uh, spacious second floor uh, where you're bombarded by art, but also bombarded by natural light, which is rare in uh, art spaces. Right. Um, where to Next. Uh, next, uh, I would go up to uh, actually up to Silicon Valley, um, and uh, I, I would I would uh, kind of look at a, a group of buildings, and that's the new buildings by the monster tech companies. Um, that includes Apple, Samsung, and Facebook. And Apple, uh, the new headquarters by uh, Foster and Partners, is an incredible. Like Apple, incre- it's an incredible, kind of perfectly detailed. Uh, building. Uh, it's a giant disc known as, the well, a lot of things, flying saucer, donut. And in the middle, there's a giant park. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful, except that you can't really visit it. You can only overlook it from the visitor center, and that's very Apple, and it's closed off, and there's walls around it. So urbanistically, I'm not a fan, but architecturally, I am. Uh, Samsung's new headquarters uh, was uh, designed by uh, NVBJ, and uh, uh, th- the idea of that is to actually Build uh, towers uh, around uh, central central courtyards that can, uh, keep repeating every uh, few floors, so that employees will walk out uh, into natural uh, spaces as, as often as they can and interact as often as they can in the outdoors, which makes a lot of sense in California. And on the, the lower level, there's public plazas that people can walk through, um, so that urbanistically works a little bit better. And then finally, Facebook. Uh, uh, by Frank Gehry. Uh, and the best part of that project, also very private, because uh, it's Facebook, uh, is a, a roof, uh, a, a planted roof, uh, where basically the whole staff uh, hangs out most of the time, and uh, really a, a smart use of, of a green roof. Um, so uh, those, are, those are some of the many new uh, tech headquarters, and Google's, uh, you know, trying to catch up. So they're, they're coming soon, too. And we have to hit San Francisco, right? Yes, definitely up to San Francisco, and uh, my favorite building there is actually not quite done, (laughs) but it's the Transbay uh, Transit Terminal, actually meant to be the other uh, end of high speed rail, uh, but also hosts a a lot of other transportation uh, options, Uh, sort of an incredible Uh, open space, uh, again, bringing in natural light and bringing in sort of that cavernous feeling of the old train stations that you see in Europe. But the highlight is also another green roof. um, And it's basically a a giant park. I don't know how many acres, but it's several acres, and it's got meandering pathways through it. And it's a public park on top of the building, which I think is really, really a smart design. Hmm. All right. So we we have time for one more cool new building. What do you choose? I go to Oakland. Actually, Uh, it's not brand new. It was built in the last maybe ten years, but it's a cathedral. Uh, It's the new Oakland Cathedral. It's called the Cathedral of Christ the Light, and it's by SOM. Uh, And uh, if you like to be inspired by holy spaces, it's 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 a great place to go. Uh, It's really it's a modern interpretation of a cathedral. Uh, with uh, sort of a you know, fabricated uh, screen in the back uh, that, that really you know, dappled light comes through, incredibly huge glulam beams that are sort of curved, and uh, really just a breathtaking, inspiring space, which uh, in architecture is you know, the best thing I can ask for. That was fun. We just traveled over 500 miles in five minutes with author Sam
0: Lubell. We'll have the links to his work, including the Mid-Century Modern Architecture Travel Guide at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find info on all the people and places you learn about here. For our next stop, we'd better fill up the tank and have plenty of bottled water on hand. We're heading to Death Valley National Park with author Matt Jaffe. Everything about the region is extreme. The park covers 3.3 million acres and is bigger than any other national park in the lower 48. It's also the hottest and driest place in America, with summer temperatures peaking north of
4: 120 degrees. But Matt told me it's well worth the drive. Death Valley is one of those places that really reorients your sense of what the world's about. Uh, I know that sounds a bit grandiose, but, but it is true. Uh, especially when you're coming from a major city like Los Angeles and you get out into this really vast um expanse and you know with huge skies towering mountains salt flats you name it um there's a real feeling of liberation um where you're kind of reminded just how big the world really is all right i buy that so so your
0: mission today is to help us hack death valley by the time our our conversation is over our listeners uh should have enough information to begin planning a trip of their own so are you up for the challenge I am okay. Great. Let's start with a bit of geography. I feel like I know where Death Valley is on a map generally, but how remote is it? Like, how long does it take to get there from, say,
4: Los Angeles? Uh, you can get to Death Valley in under five hours, and it's actually a pretty easy drive uh, from LA. Um, it's north northeast of the city. Um, you basically, shoot up State Highway 14 and take a few more roads and um, you know, again, it's an easy drive and it's a spectacular drive too because uh, one of the things I find remarkable about California and especially Southern California is how quickly y- you can get out of the city and just be into a very different world. It sounds like actually just getting to the park makes for a great road trip. Oh yeah, it's a terrific road trip. You're, you're not on any kind of major freeways once you're outside the L.A. area. It's much more two-lane roads. Um, very drivable roads, you know, nothing, nothing too hectic. Um, and again, just beautiful scenery, Joshua trees in in some places, some spectacular views along the way. All right. So help us build an itinerary. We drive to Death Valley. Mm -hmm. We show up on a relatively cool, say winter day. What should we do first? The classic thing to do in Death Valley is it's wake up before dawn and to go over to, to Zabriskie Point, which is really just a couple miles from the main area where you would stay there. Uh, Zabriskie Point is famous for the as the sun comes up, it begins to light up the the badland formations right below the point, uh, particularly this one kind of triangular um, outcropping called Manly Beacon. and it's just r- remarkable to watch the change in color. Um, as the sun comes up higher. And then the other thing that's happening is that the Panamint Mountains on the other side of the the valley begin lighting up. And whereas the foreground is going to be all kind of golds and yellows, um, the Panamint Mountains are going to take on kind of a pinkish-purple cast. And that really is kind of the definitive morning experience um, in Death Valley. And there are going to be a lot of people out there, but even though even though it's not necessarily uh an experience of solitude you're you're gonna be blown away yeah it's not Um, something you see every day right (laughs) no definitely not and um and it's it's a great photographic challenge to 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 just get that that great moment um and then right by there there's a very easy uh, dirt road that explores another area of badlands um in in 20 mule team canyon um And it only goes on for about three miles, but it it's kind of nice to get out in the middle of some of these formations as opposed to just see them from a distance. And that, that you can do in maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So before you've even had breakfast, you, you've had two really great experiences. You know,
0: being that it's a remote place, are there hotels in Death Valley? I mean, where do you eat? Where do you
4: sleep? Um, there are a limited number, but there are a couple very... Special places you can stay, one of which is the Inn at Death Valley, which goes back to 1927. It's a luxury hotel, which you don't expect in Death Valley. I think mm-hmm. most people just assume you're going to be camping or, right. um, you know, staying in a very basic motel. But um, the Inn at Death Valley was recently redone. It had a multi-million dollar renovation, which was probably. The biggest change there, um, in a number of decades. And it's kind of this Mediterranean mission style in, um, it's literally an oasis because it's fed by, um, water from a natural spring. That's what they use for, for their water supplies. There's a, a pool that is a steady, somewhere between 82 85 degrees because again it's fed directly from from the spring right just naturally that
0: warm yeah
4: yeah and um the inn has has an outstanding restaurant that really tries to emphasize desert type ingredients you know dates and pomegranates and things like that and um there's a spa there so You're doing anything but roughing it. Uh, I'm guessing
0: we have time for, say, one more stop before we head back to L.A. and civilization. So what's the last best thing to see
4: before we leave? Oh, it's hard to make a choice. But (laughs) um, one of my favorite places in the park, and this is a little bit of a drive going north, more into the northern reaches of the park, there's a spot called Ubihebe Crater. And that's the crater of a volcano that erupted about 2100 years ago and it's pretty huge um it was originally about 800 feet deep but it's been filled in parway with debris over the years so now it's it's about 600 feet deep but there's a trail that about a mile and a half long trail that circles along the the rim of the crater and you get very impressive views out over the landscape yubehebe crater is part of a larger volcanic field and then just looking down into the crater is is very impressive. it's just a it's colorful um, it's deep and it goes back to that whole point of how Death Valley recalibrates your your sense of the size of the earth because here it's relative to the rest of death valley it's a relatively small feature, but when When you're standing on the rim of it, it just looks enormous. Matt Jaffe is a veteran travel writer.
0: You can find his prose in Los Angeles Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, Sierra Magazine, and many other outlets. Coming up, perfect pairings for your California road trip. We'll visit some of the many craft breweries that make the state a beer lover's paradise. And we'll revisit a story that was a real eye-opener for me. You may have been to a wine tasting before, but have you ever been to an olive oil tasting? That's next on California Now. You probably know that California is far and away the leading producer of wine in the United States, and the wine-tasting road trip has become an institution here. But did you know that 99% of U.S. olive oil is produced in California? I recently spoke to a true pioneer of the industry. Tom Curry is co-owner of the Temecula Olive Oil Company, he gave up a 20-year career in the wine industry to work in the Grove.
5: Well, I'd like to look at it as I left the wine industry for the glamour of the olive oil industry. <laughs> so it's, well, it it's, sounds really... it's the new up-and-coming thing.
0: Well, it sounds fascinating. Tell us about that. What, what's your origin story? I mean, how, how did Temecula Olive Oil Company get started?
5: Well, both my wife and I were in the uh, wine industry for a long time. She still is in the wine industry. And we just saw the opportunities with olive oil just like the wine industry was back in the 60s and 70s, J- people were starting to discover not only new and different flavors in olive oil, but, you know, new that California really had the ability with it, our just uh, incredible climate and great population to produce some of the best uh, olive oil in the world, just like we were producing some of the best wine in the world. And we wanted to jump on that bandwagon. And we took the leap and and did it. It was uh, quite a journey.
0: Let's look across the entire state for a second. Where else would you send us for a great olive oil tasting experience? You can you know craft it as a as a road trip if you like.
5: Well, if we're traveling up from Southern California, you I would say the first stop is going to be in in Paso uh, Paso Robles and Willow Creek is always a nice uh, nice olive oil producer making fine olive oils, um, just classic California, clean, always well-made. You can continue to travel up the coast um, and go a little inland. I think as a contrast, if you stop in Lodi, which has some great wines, by the way, I love some of the old vine Lodi wines, and uh, take a little trip to the um, Cordo Olive Oil Company. So you'll see with Willow Creek, a, a classic, small boutique producer. And then you can go to the this Cordo, who is the second largest producer of olive oil in California, and just see the contrast. They're both making wonderful olive oils, just on a different scale and different style. So you get a good contrast. And then traveling up to Sonoma, um, the Olive Press, who has been around for a long time, um, they're, they're at the Jacuzzi Winery, And they have a fantastic facility that has a gorgeous tasting room, and you can see the mill right there. So that's a wonderful wine country experience as well.
0: What about uh, one that's in a surprising location, somewhere you wouldn't necessarily expect to find world-class olive oil?
5: Well, I think if you you travel um, further up past Sacramento, up into um, uh, the Sacramento Valley, there's there's no place better than to stop in, say, in Corning, which is the olive capital of the world. There's a few really good producers in that area. The Corning Olive Oil Company is up there. It has been always the hub of uh, California olives. Um, anyone that has spent any time uh, in their childhood or anything driving up uh, northern California might remember the olive pit right off the... Uh, the highway, and there's olive trees all around there. It's kind of uh, a forgotten area as far as uh, um, wine and those kind of things, but for olive oil, it's really the traditional hub of of olives in California.
0: That's master taster Tom Curry. He's the co-owner of Temecula Olive Oil Company, which has five tasting rooms in Southern California. We could go on and on, and we're going to in future podcasts. This episode must come to an end. But the nice thing about planning a road trip is imagining the sights, sounds, and experiences ahead. And here's one that I can just about taste. I spoke to Jeff Smith, the writer and director of the film Craft, the California beer documentary, and I asked
6: him to plan the ultimate California craft brewery road trip for us. I don't know how you could start anywhere but San Diego with 140-plus breweries one opening at least every week. Um, I don't know how you wouldn't stop at Stone Brewing in Escondido. It's an absolutely amazing experience. It also happens to be in an industrial park, but that's how uh, most brewers are. So if you start at Stone, if you have the time, I'd head west on Highway 78, which is also known as the Hops Highway. There are, I don't know, 25 breweries between Escondido and the beach. The best part is that you could end the day at at the beach at Pizza Port in Oceanside for some great pizza and some great beer.
0: Okay, so we're heading north from
6: San Diego. Where do we go next? Yeah, as we head north, I'd stop in Anaheim uh, in Orange County. There's one great one would be Bottle Logic Brewing in Anaheim. The guys, they're they're really innovative and are usually in and around the brewery Uh, And like all brewers, they love to talk beer and answer questions. Um, If you had more time, I would head towards LA, uh, up to Long Beach, and stop at one of my personal favorites, Beechwood Barbecue. Not only is the beer amongst some of the best, in my humble opinion, but the barbecue food is killer. Hmm. Do they happen to make beer to pair with the barbecue? I mean, is that a thing even? Uh, I don't know that they specifically brew beer to pair with barbecue, but let me tell you, it it uh, pairs just fine. <laughs> okay. So what's the next stop on our tour? Um, I'd have to say Sacramento. The guys at Track 7 always have a, a really delicious beer selection. They know what they're doing. They have, I think they have three locations in Sacramento now too. They're expanding and making killer beer. And then uh, J.E. at Roostaler Dollar grows his own hops and uses local Sacramento hops in all his beer.
0: I think I actually heard that Roost found some of the heritage hops uh, rootstock that was originally used back, you know, before the whole industry went down in Prohibition, which is really cool. So you can actually kind of taste the beer that people were drinking a hundred years ago.
6: Yep. He's brewing one of their original recipes from, yeah, a hundred years ago. Uh, Do you think, like, are California brewers kind of pushing the limits in some ways? Yeah, I mean, uh, just with hops alone, just cramming the amount of hops that that these guys have over the years that's i mean that's really what west coast ipa is but along with hops yeah uh, the ingredients list is ever-changing and never-ending um, from chocolate to cinnamon to habanero peppers vanilla one with uh curry everything is uh, possible that is really cool so what's that what's our next stop have to be chico With uh, the legendary Sierra Nevada, Ken Grossman got his start brewing in his garage and is now considered one of the grandfathers of the industry. Their classic pale ale was first brewed in 1980 and is what many brewers consider their first foray into craft beer. And the last stop in our California craft brewery road trip is going to be, what, San Francisco? How do we top off this visit to the state's brewing highlights? Well, you got to hit Anchor Steam. Yeah, right there in the heart of San Francisco. It's crammed into a whole block in the middle of the city, um, which is really not common for breweries. You got to stop and have one of their fabled steam beers and take the tour here. The copper tanks that they've been using for 100 years are absolutely beautiful. Um, If I had a little more time in San Francisco, I'd stop for a fresh pour of a Hell or High watermelon at 21st Amendment. It's also right in the city and within walking distance if there happens to be a Giants game.
0: And that's another good pairing, right? Baseball and beer. Absolutely. (laughs) Jeff Smith is the writer and director of Craft, the California beer documentary. Well, that's it for our special Road Trip Greatest Hits podcast. Getting out on the road and discovering new people and places, that's what this show is all about. We're working on some great new stories to share with you in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks again for listening to California Now. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. If you were inspired by this episode and want even more information about motoring around the Golden State, you're in luck. You can find all sorts of great road trip information online. A detailed guide to Highway 1, recommended stops as you explore California's national parks, and much more go to visitcalifornia.com slash road dash trips.